Hello and welcome to the Hustle and Bustle podcast. My name is Nicole Bennett, so I'm an urban and regional planner and I'm the host of this podcast. Each episode, I bring you conversations with city shapers and urban thinkers, leaders in the field of urban planning and city building. I'm located here on the beautiful Gold Coast in Australia. We are one of the host cities for the Brisbane 2032 Olympics and Paralympics. The next 10 years is being described as the golden decade for our city and our region. The conversations on this podcast help us understand the opportunities and challenges ahead. So please take a minute from your busy hustle and bustle day and let's have a great conversation. And welcome to episode 17 of the Hustle and Bustle podcast. Today, I have the absolute pleasure of interviewing Matt Lamont. Matt is an urban and regional planner. He graduated from QUT in 2016 and has worked across private sector, state government and local government. He was awarded the Planning Institute Young Planner of the Year in 2018 for Queensland. And he's also behind the Australian Urbanist webpage and socials, where he delivers data differently. I love how he simplified and communicates comparative data between cities, such as population densities as charging batteries and deforestation rates as the number of chainsaws. It's really powerful stuff. Uh, Matt is also the editor of Queensland Planner magazine called The Agenda, where he coordinates contributions for this quarterly publication. You're an inspiring young planner, Matt, and I love all that you do within the profession. How are you today? Hello. Good, thank you. Um, Quietly realising how much of a massive nerd I am. It's weird hearing all of that stuff back, um, but it's a pleasure to be here. That's awesome. Yes, you, you are a little planning nerd, but I, I think, I think we all are, you know, we all, we all love this sort of stuff. And, um, and I love that everything you put out there because I think what you do is you, um, you're very provocative and you, you kind of simplify these complex things, um, so well. I remember when you sort of started to, uh, edit the Queensland planner and it just went from, I guess, more of a journal, an academic journal, to something that was engaging and magazine-like, which, you know, meant that every time it sort of arrived in my letterbox, I was excited to open it. Oh, that's great to hear. Yeah, when I took over the the role of editor, um, I heard that a lot of people hadn't taken the magazine out of the plastic for a few years. So I really wanted to shake things up a bit and give people something interesting to read and interesting to look at and... I guess there are plenty of academic journals in the world and PIA has its own academic journal and this magazine was never meant to be that. So it's been you know, a great pleasure to bring the fun back into it and have some controversial and um, provocative conversations through the magazine. Yeah, I love that. I love that. Um, so what I'm really keen to chat with you about today is your recent presentation at the Planning Institute State Conference on the Sunshine Coast last month. And the presentation you delivered was titled The Future of Planning Schemes. And we all know planning schemes are, are vitally important in bringing together and communicating the complex land use and development policy to technical people, to developers, and but to the broader community as well. And I think because of some of this wide application and, and the diverse audience, it's often difficult and confusing for many stakeholders to use. So I'm really interested in understanding how we can do planning schemes better. And I'm just really keen for you to share some of the ideas from your presentation that you gave to the Planning Institute. 
Yeah, I'd love to. Um, but before we get into talking about planning schemes, um, I was wondering if I could say a quick thank you. Yeah, go for um, it. And the thank you is to you and Amy um, for what you did in Southport through your Envy project. And if any of your listeners haven't listened to your interview with Amy yet, I would highly, highly recommend it. Um, and the reason I want to thank you is not necessarily as, you know, a planning nerd, which we now all know I am. My cover is blown. That's okay. Um, it's more as just a young human being living in southeast Queensland. And I hope you realise the significance of what you were able to achieve in Southport. And can I tell you a bit of a story about why it means so much to me? Yeah. So... When I was finishing uni, I was searching for a new home um, and I led a very boring lifestyle during my high school and uni years and was working all throughout it. And I was able to, you know, save up enough money for a deposit um, and I set about trying to find my first home. And as a, you know, 21-year-old, I really didn't need much. Um, my ambitions were pretty low um, and I was really interested in just buying like a tiny little studio or a one bedroom apartment. And I started to look around at, you know, what was available at the time. And I started to, I guess, get feedback from a lot of people that an apartment wasn't necessarily a great investment. Um, so I started to change my thinking a bit and I started to find or try to find at least um, a tiny little house, like a cottage or something in the city I grew up in. I won't name and shame it. Um, there are kind of two options for houses. You can either have a multi-million dollar cottage in the inner city or a four or five bedroom house, 10 Ks from the city and Neither of those really met my needs as a, a 21-year-old. I couldn't afford a house which was the scale I probably needed um, because they were all multi-million dollar cottages in the inner city. Um, and if I moved a bit further out of the city, they were all four and five bedroom detached houses, which were more affordable, but just so much bigger than what I needed. Mm. And I remember one particular day, I found a cottage about seven kilometres from the city. It was what I could afford, which was great. Um, and it was a size which actually kind of met my needs as a young person without a family and kids or whatever um, it may be. So I got really excited. I jumped in the car. I drove straight out to where it was. Um, and by the time I drove past this cottage, it already had a sold sticker out the front. And it was just... Wow absolutely devastating because I'd been searching for about six months at this point and just couldn't find anything that, you know, met my needs or wants as a young person trying to find a home. But on the drive home um, from seeing that sold sticker, I saw this vacant block of land um, and it wasn't listed on any of the real estate websites. It was just a handwritten for sale sign with a random guy's phone number lent up against the front fence. And I pulled over and I had a look at this block of land and I just thought to myself, I guess this is my only other option. I guess if I can't buy a little house, um, I'll just have to build a little house for myself. 
and I got swept up in the views of this particular block of land, and I called this random guy selling his block of land himself, and I bought it. Um, wow. And I really didn't put much thought into it. I just thought, you know what, the market hasn't provided a house which is of a scale and price that works for me as a young person, so I'm just going to have to build it myself. And then I got really nervous, really, really nervous, because this was the biggest financial investment of my life. Um, for most people, a house is. Um, and I started to look around, you know, the suburb which I had bought in, and they were all four and five bedroom houses on four and 600 square meter blocks. Mm. And I got really nervous. I thought, what am I doing? Thinking that I can build a little house which meets my needs in this wholesome family suburb full of McMansions, basically. Um, and I caved to the pressure and the nervousness. And I ended up building a five bedroom house in a wholesome family suburb, just like all of the neighbors. And it's gorgeous. It's beautiful. It has, you know, the sweeping panoramic views. Um, and I absolutely hate it. Yeah. It is the biggest source of frustration with myself, I guess, that I caved into the pressure of doing what everyone else has done just because it was the precedent and I didn't do what was really right for me. Mm. And I guess I'm also frustrated that that's what the planning scheme where I um, grew up and bought in allows. Um, our planning scheme here doesn't allow micro lots like you built um, in the Southport PDA, and it doesn't really accommodate people who want to build a small house. If you want to build a house here, it has to be on at least a 400 square meter block, and in my case, a 650 square meter block. And it really doesn't accommodate young people or people who don't fit in with that traditional family structure who might need a four or five bedroom house in a backyard. Mm. And that's why what you did on the Gold Coast is so significant to me, not as a planning nerd, but just as a young person who would love to see more housing in the world, which meets the needs of young people. And it's a real shame that our planning systems in most parts of Southeast Queensland don't allow that. They allow a continuation of what we've had before, what our parents and what our grandparents wanted to live in. And they don't acknowledge that there is a younger generation who may not necessarily want to fit into that same family structure or have that same backyard and Thanks for sharing that. I, I I know of examples and stories similarly to that, but it's interesting that someone who is is a planner and who's educated and, and qualified and, and understands kind of all of these competing interests and needs and and you know, so we've got all these spare bedrooms in all these dwellings everywhere. Um and it's just because, you know, the the household compositions, like the household sizes are getting smaller and smaller. You know, the most common is couples and single ha single person households nowadays. Um but yet the you know, the vast majority of housing stock currently in cities and also being built in cities is three, four, five bedroom homes, which plus all of the other media room studies, you know, all of these sorts of superfluous rooms, in my opinion. And I just, you know, my family is huge on 
camping and outdoors and, and, you know, we do, we live outside. And so I just can't believe that you can build a house completely over the, you know, a, a 600 square meter block. Like you can just completely max out that site with, you know, walls and a roof and, and leave no outdoor area, leave no ability to kind of have a, have grass, have a garden, you know, have a sort of a veggie patch, you know, have shade trees, have all these sorts of elements that make living in a in a subtropical environment pleasant you know we end up just building these great big houses on these parcels of land and putting aircon on all day so yeah it, it blew my mind and that was a big inspiration for why amy and i did what we did we took a standard 600 square meter block of land in southport and we turned it into 10 house and land packages and you know it was hard and yeah go back and listen to that that podcast episode we did i think i think you're right we need to be able to repeat it now because there was a lot of people who were concerned with what we were proposing that it was going to be slums of the future but i think i've heard that before um you know we're squishing them in like sardines but you know if you go and have a look at it you have a tour of it and and you just have a, a sense for the people that live there and for the, what it's giving back to the to the street I think you would just automatically say that that's not not true. And I think what you've done is so, so special. So thank you to you and Amy for doing that on behalf of all young people that would love to do something a bit different and have a home which isn't exactly the same as our parents and our grandparents. Oh, thanks. Thanks. I appreciate it. But let's talk about planning schemes because I can talk about envy all day. (laughs) Yeah, that's not why I'm here, but... You deserve thanks. So let's get on to planning schemes. Cool. Um, so I guess I'll just tell you a bit of my story and how I came to this position of questioning how our most fundamental planning instrument, the planning scheme, works. Yep. And I guess what is, I guess, a bit different about the perspective I bring to this is, I guess, my age um, so for those listening who don't know me, I'm in my mid to early 20s and I guess I was born after the internet. Um, so that means I don't really know a world where I couldn't Google the answer to every question I have. And when I was in primary school, my friends and I all learned HTML so we could customise our MySpace pages. Um, and my first phone as a child was a smartphone and I guess I've just grown up expecting all of the services which I interact with to be at my fingertips online and easy to use. You're a digital native, I think they say. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly it. And I think that can be a bit of a a blessing and a curse being a digital native because it means that I'm excessively lazy. Um, (laughs) If something doesn't come come easily to me, I lose interest and you know, if I'm trying to find information on someone's website and it takes more than a couple of clicks in a few seconds, I've probably already moved on. Um, but I guess that digital nativeness um, is also, I guess, a bit of a blessing um, because you can start to bring different perspectives to how we do things. And I guess that's especially important in planning where we don't necessarily have a lot of um, innovation or motivation to do things differently um and then i guess i think back to when i started working which was um you know a few years ago now but my first job was 
writing and working on development applications. And I remember the first planning scheme, which I was, you know, spending most of my time interacting with and what my first impression of that planning scheme was. And it was like I was looking through a stone tablet through a computer screen. (laughs) It was like someone had just taken this hard copy document, which was designed to be printed and bound and just uploaded it to a website. Yep, pretty much. And it just, it blew my mind. It absolutely blew my mind um, because that particular council, which I won't name, they'd spent years preparing this planning scheme, years, and they hadn't seemed, at least from my end, looking through this computer screen, they hadn't seemed to give any thought to how people would interact with it as an online service. And, you know, I'll give them credit where credit is due. It had an index and a few hyperlinks, um, you know, some of which were broken. But it really (laughs) wasn't interactive. It wasn't intuitive. It wasn't clearly set out. And it really didn't afford the user any modern conveniences. And that's what the internet is for. Mm. Um, And I guess I just couldn't really comprehend at the time why this would be the outcome Um, and why we would attempt to digitise a planning scheme if we weren't using all of those conveniences, which, you know, an online system provides. You know, the internet exists to make life easier, to make things more accessible, and it gives us this incredible opportunity to build better services from the ground up, not just upload the same old stuff so people can see it through a screen. Well, you know know what's interesting is that when... When I was at council, Gold Coast Council, you know, we we would produce city plan and we would produce an amendment to city plan. And each time we did that, we were required to go through this process of printing it out, quality assuring it, then having the CEO sign a sticker to say it's the it's the proper, you know, legislative copy. And then we would have to sort of publicly exhibit that sort of copy. And then we would have to kind of send a physical copy that's the exact replica of that to our legal panel firms and to our council officers and have it sort of in, in our council branches. And that was sort of the the approach that council had taken since, I think, the 1988 Albertshire planning scheme. And it had just wow. continu- it had continued. And that was in our, it was in all our policy and procedures. You know, it, it, to change that process was, we did end up sort of, we don't now print them, which is great. But this version of City Plan, which was, you know, which started in 2016, we were still doing it then. So it's only been in the last couple of years that we're moving away from that. And that was the focus of everything. You sort of, the deliverable of a planning scheme was that process. Yeah, we've built all of these procedures around the ways of the past. And trying to question or change them is certainly no easy feat because, we are so entrenched in these habits and these processes and unraveling them. It's not easy. It's not a one-step process. It's not just fixing the planning scheme. It's fixing everything around it as well. Yeah. Um, But it's a worthwhile one to undertake, I think, because when I think about the people that haven't transitioned to the digital age particularly well, like Blockbuster Video, or Kodak, or Nokia, um, I don't really want planning to meet the same fate as those. That would 
really upset me because I think planning does add value to the world, or at least as a planner, that's what I choose to believe. Um, and I would like to avoid a situation where we get so entrenched in the ways of the past that we stop trying to add value and modernize our way of doing things for the people that have to use the services that we produce and that we offer. Yeah, I agree. And I think the current time in history might be the right time to do that, to shake things up a bit, because in 2020, COVID served as this circuit breaker in a lot of ways. And I really like to think of the example of telecommuting as a great example of how COVID served as a circuit breaker, because it took this global pandemic, which killed several hundred thousand people, infected millions and caused you know tens of trillions of dollars in economic contraction to make something as logical as telecommuting a common reality. And who would have thought, you know, that would happen? Who would have thought it would take all of that to make something as logical as telecommuting a common reality? Yeah. And I think about that and I kind of realised that we all should have known that would happen. Um, We all should have known we would never break from these habits that we'd made without, you know, we wouldn't break from these habits and these processes and these rituals unless there was something massive to force us to do it. And it's exactly the same thing you're talking about there with all of these processes um, and procedures which we've built not just into the planning scheme but around our planning schemes. And we need something massive to convince us um, that there's a need to do something differently because we as human beings, we're a habitual species. We like routine. We crave certainty. Um, We have this great comfort in the known and we accept the known, even if we know it's not the best possible outcome because we fear the unknown and we use all these routines and these processes to make our everyday life easier And that fear of the unknown is like one of our most basic primal survival instincts. So we really need to, I guess, harness these global tipping point crises um, and use them as a circuit breaker to break from those routines, I think. Um, And, you know, we may not have the fear of death to motivate people like we did with telecommuting, um, But I'd like to think there are some other, you know, things we could do and, you know, I guess moments in history which we could leverage to encourage people, even if it's just for a second, to think about doing something differently, not just in our planning schemes, but in our planning systems more broadly. And I guess when I spoke about this kind of concept at the um, conference, my idea was that we could use... Um, a crisis of trust to do that. So according to the Edelman Trust Barometer, trust in government leaders is at an all-time low at the moment, and more people actively distrust government leaders to do what's right, and most people believe our government leaders are purposefully trying to mislead us. And that's pretty massive when you think about it. Yes, it's not the fear of death, um, but I would like to think... You know, even if it's just for a second that those statistics might encourage some of our elected officials, even if it's just for a second, 
to think about doing something differently. And I think a lot of the time what people's fear and distrust and scepticism about planning comes from is that they don't understand what we as planners are trying to communicate. And often the blame for that gets pushed back on the people. People get dismissed as, you know, not educating themselves or not trying to understand or not reading things properly. And to me, that's so disappointing to hear. Um, For me, I really look inwardly when I can see that someone's not understanding what we as planners are trying to communicate or have a fear of the unknown, because that's a reflection on us and our inability to communicate at a level people need. Yeah. And as planners, we're, you know, in this profession to serve the public interest one way or another. And I think a lot of planners get into planning because we do care about people. Um, and, you know, we may not be massive socialites all the time. There's a lot of us who are pretty big nerds and introverts. Um, but at the end of the day, we care about people, I think, or I would at least hope to think most of us care about our, um, our fellow citizens. Yeah. So we really do have this duty to communicate properly with people at a level they can understand and appreciate. And I think our planning schemes is probably where we need to start doing better. And perhaps we can use our planning schemes uh, to communicate with people directly in a language they can understand um, and start to rebuild that trust through understanding and transparency. Yeah, I think so. I think you're right. But I wonder, do you have any ideas as to what that communication, that different communication looks like? Like, is there a you know, a, a platform or a format that you've seen work well, you know, in other places that, that could kind of be applied in this fashion or is it really going to take a bit of a, you know, all the, all the sort of experts together to really sort of solve that? Yeah, so when I presented at the conference, I did um, show a mock-up I built. Um, it's just a an online kind of interactive mock-up it's not a real planning scheme yet but you can click around you can press the buttons you can navigate through this um planning scheme which i made up for a city called utopia creative i know um and you can (laughs) see what those concepts i'm talking about kind of look like but i guess to describe it to an audible audience um the core kind of concept i was working around was this idea of an exemplar based planning system So it's not a performance-based planning system or a prescriptive planning system, but rather something which tries to overcome the challenges and the critique of both. So we know, and this is getting into real planning nerd territory, I'm sorry, um, but we know people critique performance-based planning systems as being too subjective, too open to interpretation, and not clear and accountable enough. And I guess some of that public mistrust could come from that. But we also know that um, prescriptive planning systems get critiqued for being too prescriptive and too black and white and not allowing room for innovation and improvement beyond what is you know, prescribed in black and white. Yeah. So my idea of this exemplar-based planning system is one where you have, 
I guess, these high-level kind of outcome statements and a very clear illustration or graphic to show exactly what that means. And it's those illustrations and those graphics which go alongside each desired outcome, which try to communicate things clearly in a way people can understand. Um, and I think it's probably wise um, for us as planners on a few levels, because I don't know about your experiences, Nicole, but whenever I've worked with an architect on a DA, they certainly don't read the planning scheme cover to cover before putting pen to paper and working on a design. Often um, what I find is that, you know, they ask us for height setback, you know, a few basic planning scheme parameters, and then they get to work, they do their architectural design, and then it lands back on the planner's desk to justify against the planning system and the planning scheme. And that's so backwards in a way that something is designed absent from the planning scheme, and then planners come in and try and justify it against the planning scheme. So I'd like to think that if we had all of these illustrative examples and these graphics, um, that we could communicate with architects and building designers in the language they speak rather than, you know, nerdy code provisions. You know, they may not necessarily take them all in or on board, but if they have a flick through all of these illustrative examples um, of what kind of outcomes the planning scheme is looking to achieve on a site, maybe it'll shape their thinking and kind of inform the design before they start putting that pen to paper um, rather than the backwards approach we have at the moment. Yeah, wow. I love it. That's exemplar-based planning. I think, you know, going back to your comment around envy, that's that was the idea of envy. It was to become an exemplar. You know, we sort of said it's a pilot. Let's try something different. And if if it's successful, it will be an exemplar and a way to sort of set the bar for what we would like. Because I think a bit of an idea out there that planning schemes are there to sort of just filter out the really bad things, you know. So, you know, where's the bar being set? Well, you know, it's being set at kind of a mediocre level and we just have to have provisions and requirements in there to make sure we don't get really bad outcomes. But we're not getting great outcomes. We're not getting exemplar outcomes. We're not getting innovative outcomes because where's the carrot? Where's the kind of incentive for developers to actually raise the bar, you know? You're absolutely right. You've really hit the nail on the head there. Our planning schemes set a minimum benchmark and the applications we get meet the minimum be- the minimum benchmark Yeah, because that's all we've asked. And often we see these, you know, wonderfully designed uh, proposals come in which seek performance outcomes and they get knocked back and you see media articles and petitions of people critiquing a council for not sticking to their planning scheme. And it's sad because we're continually just perpetuating this culture of meeting the minimum standard because you'll be punished for doing anything else. And that's really disappointing to me. Yeah, I agree. Look, we we are nearly out of time today, so I just wanted to see is there anything else you want to sort of leave us with before we sort of wrap up this this conversation? It's been great, but I just wanted to see is there any any other little gems in there? I think if you're a planner in any kind of sector of, you know, the profession, 
what I'd really encourage you to do when thinking about how to do planning differently and how to create better online services is to think outside planning. Don't just look at what every other local government is doing. Um, Don't just look at other planning websites. Think about what you as a modern consumer enjoy. And an example I gave of this in my um, demo planning scheme, which I showed was I as a modern consumer don't like having to go to Coles and Woolworths and Aldi and, you know, wherever else to get my groceries in a week. Me either. So why would I want to go to a planning scheme, PD Online, a interactive mapping system, all on different platforms? It doesn't make sense. And, you know, back in the day when we were printing the code provisions in black and white and the maps in colour and on larger paper, it made sense for them to be two separate things. But now we have the internet and it makes (laughs) no sense for them to be on two separate platforms. That's awesome. No, thank you. Thank you for challenging us to do better in this space. I think it's long, long overdue and it's probably not just limited to planning schemes. I think regional plan, you know, and, and other kind of planning policies like state planning policy could all do with a massive shake-up in, in making them, rather than just a PDF online, making them interactive and, and enjoyable to, to digest and engage with. So a great challenge for our colleagues out there. So thanks, Matt. I appreciate your time today. Thank you. It's been an absolute pleasure. I really appreciate it. Awesome. And thank you for tuning into the Hustle and Bustle podcast this week. If you've enjoyed this episode, please leave a rating and review so that others can find out about the show. You can also follow us on Instagram, hustle underscore bustle underscore podcast, and LinkedIn, search for Hustle and Bustle podcast and request to join the group. That's all from this episode. Thanks again for listening. I'll catch you next time. Bye for now.